Welcome to another episode of the WAN Manager Podcast. I am your host, as always, Greg Bryan, and this is the show where we talk to networking experts about the data services that make business possible. So a lot of folks who listen to the show will remember that once each year we here at Telegeography do a survey of WAN managers. Many of you listen to the show. Thanks for that. If you're listening to the show and you are a WAN or IT infrastructure manager, I would be remiss not to tell you that uh, we'll talk later in the episode about when exactly, but we're doing, of course, the survey again in the coming year, and you really, really should participate. And you're going to hear all the interesting insights that we got out of this survey through the course of updating it in 2021. So today, my guest, it's not going to be solo. I have my colleague, Elizabeth Thorne, who was uh, really the driving force behind the survey this past year, doing a lot of the interviews, collecting a lot of responses, and and actually writing up the report. So um, this is the first year where I didn't have as direct hand in it, but of course, uh, I have really enjoyed reading the results uh, that she came up with, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hey, thanks for having me on, Greg. I'm always so happy to be on the podcast. It actually hasn't been too long since we last talked for our year in review. But uh, yeah, as you said, this podcast is going to be all about the results of our WAN manager survey. And uh, this was kind of my baby this year. Mm -hmm. So I am really excited to dig into some of the results that we got. Yeah, and no holiday party going on in the next room while we're recording this episode. (laughs) So a little bit easier to uh, focus maybe other we, we had some great uh, end of the year insights, which some of the survey stuff made it in, but we weren't quite done with it yet. So you're going to have a lot of, and, and we'll go more in depth on a lot of things. Why don't you, if you could maybe just start out just giving us some background on the survey itself. Who did we talk to? Where are they from? That kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, absolutely. So this is our fourth year conducting the survey, which means that at this point we have quite a bit of year on year data, especially for the network section. Um, but as usual this year, we asked, uh, corporate WAN managers about their network topologies, geography, and uh, decision-making. And as well, this year, we focused on network security, specifically zero-trust security and uh, SASE, you know, Secure Access Service Edge, mm-hmm. and how WAN managers are approaching those sorts of next-generation security ideas in their own organizations. Yeah, so the WAN manager survey targets mostly corporate network managers at multinational mm-hmm. companies. We tend to target the kind of global 5,000, uh, the largest private and publicly owned companies, uh, kind of briefly going into some of the demographic breakdown. Yeah, uh, definitely like, interesting yes. to know who, who uh, we're talking about Absolutely. because that makes a big difference in, in their network decisions. So yep. Please. So like 86% of respondent companies had like a billion or more revenue. In 2020, and the median revenue was like 6.6 billion, and the median employee count was 17,000. So these are pretty huge companies, right. by and large, that we're talking to. Uh, additionally, there was a pretty widespread of uh, industries. Um, the most common was financial services. Um, however, we had enough uh, responses from financial services, business services, technology, auto and trucks, and industrials that we were able to actually break out those mm-hmm. results by industry in the full report. Yeah, and I think one thing worth worth noting too is that almost everyone um, who participated would be a multinational, but most were also multi-regional too. Yes. So maybe a few that that um, only have network in say maybe the Americas or something like that. But really, mostly we're talking about um, uh, enterprises with a global reach, which is going to make a difference. Too. Yes, absolutely. Like uh, although most of these companies were headquartered in the U.S. or U.S., Canada, or Western Europe, mm-hmm. which 
is also pretty typical of right. most ma- multinational broader, companies, right? right? Yeah. Uh, there was a pretty wide global spread in terms of sites. Um, I think it was like maybe 40% of the average sites were not in Western Europe or US. Mm-hmm. So that gives you an idea of how kind of disparate that is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and um, uh, we're now, as you said, in the fourth year. So we have the ability to do some time series analysis um, mm-hmm. to, to see how things have changed. It's been a tumultuous four years, perhaps, uh, compared to what it could have been. You know, starting this uh, in, in 2018, um, I, I don't think I would have anticipated just how much... Uh, change there might be over that course. So it's kind of interesting to see. Absolutely. I mean, of course, the kind of top of the line uh, takeaway, the big result that we saw, especially looking at that time series analysis is mm-hmm. um, in terms of the decline of MPLS, right? right? We saw for the, the first the headline, yeah, yeah that's yeah. the big headline, yeah. Yeah. you know, the death of MPLS for the first time uh, in our survey history, MPLS usage actually dropped below half of average sites. Mm-hmm. We saw 46% of sites were running MPLS in 2021. Uh, meanwhile, DIA has been on a steady increase and in 2021 was at 42%. So they're like right neck there, neck. neck and neck so with each other. Maybe, maybe they'll cross next year. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. And in terms of sort of like a time series, MPLS declined by 5% uh, Kager over those four years and DIA was a 3% increase. Mm-hmm. So that kind of gives you an idea of the way that those trend lines are going. But I do find that really interesting that um, MPLS is seeding ground. It seems primarily to DIA. Broadband is still a little bit smaller. Wireless is still really small. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a the, the primary trade-off we're seeing is really between MPLS and DIA. Not in, you know, one of the ideas of SD-WAN is that you can accommodate any number of different um, underlay technologies, but thus far it's mostly been about uh, swapping MPLS for DIA, it seems. Absolutely. I think a lot of that comes down to, as we said, the kind of composition of the enterprise that we're talking to are Mm -hmm. huge multinationals and therefore they oftentimes are looking for some of those performance and security assurances that uh, you just can't get with broadband necessarily, even if they're trying to move away from MPLS. And often a global supplier Mm -hmm. of these things right so maybe if you if you operate say network only in in the u.s or even a region of the u.s it's a lot easier to go with um, maybe a uh, an mso or or someone like that and and get something like doxis kind of service instead of daa but if you're buying a centralized global network and you're wanting to add internet it's probably going to be mostly daa still yeah definitely we saw that bear out when um it came to asking questions about sourcing you know obviously global providers are still the go-to for mpls Mm -hmm. but then with dia it's uh more of a mix of global and regional telcos or nsbs um in interviews we heard uh, a pretty common strategy for DIA sourcing was to go with a kind of a tier one global supplier and mm-hmm. then for uh, secondary DIA, go with like a regional best in breed, depending on where gotcha. you were. I wonder, did you get much commentary on the sort of aggregator angle? Um, are they tending to go ISP direct or carrier as the sourcing agent? Or do you, did you <clears throat> talk to any folks who were going in that kind of like, well, I'll do this myself, but with somebody else's help for sourcing. Yeah, I actually, I heard quite a bit of interesting color about um, broadband sourcing, you Mm -hmm. know. So there was one person I talked to who um, 
they had actually gone the DIY route mm-hmm. for their broadband sourcing where they were managing all the contracts in-house and they're actually having uh, quite a bit of frustration with mm-hmm. it. Like exactly mm-hmm. the type of frustration you hear that, um, you know, is one of those complications where they were, you know, for example, like sourcing uh, broadband in Germany. And right. when the one person in their office who speaks German was out they couldn't deal with the provider Absolutely. and also they didn't necessarily know about the um, the IT environment or sorry, the telecom environment in that area. And so they found that they kind of got a bad deal. And um, this person I was talking to literally said like, you know, maybe if we'd gone with an aggregator, we wouldn't have had to deal with these yeah. issues. But yeah. then on the flip side of that, you know, I talked to someone who, you know, was thinking about or had looked at internet aggregators, but given that they were mainly looking at broadband as an area for cost savings, they mm-hmm. found that when you added on the cost of management right. with an internet aggregator, it wasn't that much cheaper than just going with DIA. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that kind of lessened the um, appeal for them. Yeah. And, and conversely, if you're using an aggregator for DIA, it might bring it up to MPLS costs. Now mm-hmm. there are reasons to use DIA beyond just the cost savings over MPLS too like digital transformation and, and cloud and all that sort of thing. So um, certainly uh, I could see pretty good arguments depending on your situation either way. Yeah. Excellent. Well, what about bandwidth? Um, so, uh, you know, one of the things that we do in our hypothetical scenarios um, that, uh, that I've created to kind of test our pricing and ground truth it and make it look like regular networks and look at what our benchmarking customers are thinking about when they come to us um, is creating these hypothetical scenarios where we say, okay, you start out with an all MPLS network. One of the assumptions I always make is that even if you're not looking for savings, um, you're looking to increase um, your uh, throughput. We've heard from people, I think, um, from a lot of different industries that, okay, when everybody returned to the office or started to return to the office, you're used to now doing Zoom. You might have even jettisoned some desk phones. And um, and so you're going to need a lot more bandwidth for that UCAS services. Did we see any of those increased bandwidth needs and just the cloud digital transformation? Did we see that play out in, uh, in the reported bandwidths they're using? Oh, absolutely. I mean, across MPLS, DIA, and broadband, um, we see you know, a trend of uh, port sizes, 50 megs and over are on the increase in terms of procurement Mm -hmm. or in terms of their percentage of the overall port sizes in the corporate network, while uh, port sizes like 50 meg and under the smaller ones are been on the declining from like one to 4%. Um, So we're definitely seeing that corporate networks are hungry for bandwidth. Um, Yeah. And that that brings me to a thought about what this actually looks like. So we see the number of MPLS, uh, number of sites running MPLS has gone down. MPLS was historically always pretty heavily weighted to the under 50 megs. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing this decline in um, you know, port circuit connections that are under 50 megs. Some of that's probably coming from maybe jettisoning MPLS and adding in DIA of a much higher capacity than had been there or broadband, of course. Mm-hmm. So it's like there's, there's not just like a bandwidth migration, but some of it's the product substitution, I would think, in that as well. Right? Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, broadband saw the biggest swings where it was mm-hmm. like 100 to 500 meg broadband ports increased by like 
5%. Right. That was like the biggest right. increase we saw across those four years versus MPLS where, because it's kind of universally on the decline, those changes were much smaller, like mm-hmm. within 1% either way. Right. Right. Because they're not so much changing their MPLS port sizes themselves. It's that they're getting rid of maybe some of their bigger MPLS ports, uh, you know, Right. Altogether. Or even it's yeah. more like they're getting rid of the small ones. Right. 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 Yeah. Because those are the ones where like you could just throw in some DIA. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, as part of the relative mix, there's more MPLS ports, but more larger MPLS ports. That doesn't necessarily mean they are procuring more MPLS. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. just like yeah. the composition is changing. And, and in broadband, there's just some plan avail- availability changes. So, so in our business broadband report that came out last fall, we saw that um, the number of like fiber to the premises kind of plans had greatly increased over the past three years. So if your broadband circuits are going up in size, it might be that all of a sudden you actually have um, maybe fiber to the curb Mm -hmm. or fiber to the premises that wasn't available before. And so you can get out of the DSL that's, that's rate limited and, and um, go to something bigger. So it's, it's really also, Good to see that uh, manifest in actual enterprise networks out there. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, related to this conversation, especially about replacing MPLS with DIA, is the conversation of, you know, backups and redundancy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we asked this specifically about MPLS because, you know, traditionally the most kind of redundant line you could have would be uh, active-active MPLS. When we started the survey in 2018, that was the most common way Mm -hmm. that people had their MPLS configured. And uh, we now see that using a alternative connectivity service like DA or broadband is now the most common way that WAN managers who have MPLS on their network are, you know, adding that redundant line. You really um, have to have SD-WAN to take advantage yes. of that in the same way, right? So, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So that does show as well kind of indirectly the, you know, increased adoption mm-hmm. of SD-WAN. Uh, but the interesting thing about that is that the... Um, like there are still people who have active active MPLS. Mm-hmm. The greatest change has been um, the elimination of having a passive MPLS line mm. and people who had no backup at all, who just had an MPLS line. Flying by the seat of their pants. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so yeah. those people have, mm-hmm. you know, now substituted right. DIA or broadband. So we're actually seeing some of that greater redundancy mm-hmm. Uh, that was promise. That was a promise of SD WAN right. seeming to come to fruition. Now that's really interesting because again, back to my hypothetical networks. Um, that that's one of the things I I look at is just that even if you're not trying to um, realize massive savings, which has long been the kind of main argument about SD WAN or whatever, and I think it's becoming less so because it's more about you know accommodating digital transformation about um, uh, changing your security posture and all that sort of thing, that if you go from your MPLS fully redundant access lines, that's where, that's where it really gets you. Even if you have a passive MPLS backup port that's maybe charged at 50% or something mm-hmm. like that, you still needed a, a redundant access line. When you can turn that access line into a broadband or a DIA circuit, then you get more capacity, have SD-WAN running so you're doing load balancing so you can use that as your backup and um, and that right there can can like really increase the the resiliency. In fact, one of the scenarios I did add sort of like at at uh, your your tier one site, so to speak, um, a triplicate. Right. So you had an, a dual MPLS connection. 
now that becomes an MPLS, DIA, and, and uh, broadband uh, tertiary kind of connection. Mm -hmm. and, and that really changes the performance of your network. And it still ended up being cheaper, actually, in that case for, for most of them. But even if it's not, even if it's about the same price, I think that's what folks are after these days is to accommodate all that cloud traffic without sending it through the centralized breakouts and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Right. And then kind of related to, you know, talking about these hypothetical networks is that there also might be, you know, different um, configurations within the same network, depending on what the sites um, bandwidth requirements and performance requirements are, you know, you might mm -hmm. have some sites, you know, your core sites where it still has an active, active MPLS line. And then, Others where you've subbed out, you know, maybe you have MPLS and DIA, or maybe some others where you have just DIA and broadband. And so that's allowing more flexibility as well mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, balancing cost savings and performance uh, with your, you know, your total budget. Hey, folks, this is Charles. And Lizzie. From Telegeography. We have a quick aside before we get back to the show. Are you hiring in the WAN space? It seems like everyone's either looking for their new position or they're trying to desperately hire for their department right now. That's, that's right. And if so, you might want to post your job to WANform. If you haven't checked it out yet, it's a place for those who manage wide area networks and maintain IT infrastructure. I've always found that going to industry-specific job boards tends to have a better success rate and yield a better crop of candidates compared to more general job boards. And that's exactly what we're trying to achieve by adding this new job openings area to the WAN forum. You can see what it's all about at WANforum.com. Yeah, if you'd like a position to be posted to this community, shoot us a message at info at WANforum.com. Now back to the show. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. So, so what about... Um, the, the future? What, what do we think we see coming down the line in terms of product substitution and whatnot? Right. Well, so one thing that kind of stood out in some of the interviews that we did, because uh, this is not necessarily something we surveyed. Yeah, we did not have a survey question about um, a network as a service. No, yeah, example. but so network as a service was a pretty popular topic among mm -hmm. uh, the interviews with WAN managers that we did. And um, you know, network as, as a service, obviously, is you know kind of the ability to flexibly uh, procure transport, uh, mainly to data centers, you know, but could be data center to data center, or you know, for various types of different connectivity. Uh, but we did hear from companies who are utilizing those network as a service technologies and companies, uh, kind of combined with SD WAN mm -hmm. to you know kind of create their own private backbones between core sites and. Um, with While dynamic uh, sort of, you know, sort of the ability to do bandwidth on demand between those in some cases. Right, right? exactly. Yeah. A lot of people is like, you know, if they are getting rid of their MPLS, a lot of time, one of the big concerns is like, what am I going to do about my backbone if it's not mm -hmm. running across a carrier's you know, MPLS line or MPLS network? And so some people that we talked to are sort of like, OK, we're going to have Internet. Uh, enabled SD, you know, SD-WAN enabled internet for the branch sites, and they're going to connect at a data center. You know, they're going to be going to a data center where then we have, you know, our own procured uh, private connectivity through network as a service connecting core sites and uh, data centers. So right. this is some kind of a new strategy that we're seeing start to unfold among some companies. Yeah, well, it's really interesting. Good to get 
sort of uh, real life confirmation of what that looks like from from the interview side. Obviously, we'll have to work that into the future survey. But I should say, you've worked on um, uh, our Internet Middle Mile project. Mm -hmm. I've had on Christian Koch uh, to talk about network as a service stuff that's up and coming, him coming from the sort of data center side of things presently. So when it's done, which should be in, in quarter one, 2022, sometime mm -hmm. here, I'll, I'll have on the principal investigator of that, Eric Kreifeld, our colleague, to talk more about what we're seeing. Because from where I sit, a lot of the network as a service stuff is, has been pretty nascent. And if we're doing this interview last year sometime, it's so the, the very sort of bleeding edge of, of adopting that. But um, it'll, it'll be good to check in on, on how things have emerged over the last six months even. So. Yeah. Not to go on a complete tangent yeah. about Middle Mile because I could. Yeah. But... <laughs> yeah. I will say because I'm currently working on that research product right now. So like my head is completely full of it. But um, from what I see of it, it's sort of like it's not like from a transport standpoint, it's the same you know, it's the same underlay, basically. Right. So most of the innovation comes from the flexibility on the commercial side. Mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, easier... They still have to buy wavelengths between the... Data exactly. It's just like the yeah, speed exactly. that you can procure it and whether you can turn it up, turn it down, or turn it off when you need to. Mm -hmm. And that just allows for a lot of greater flexibility. It allows the network team to be more responsive um, and be more, you know, application aware and like all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I... I'm personally really excited to see, you know, how the enterprise mm -hmm. uh, network uh, community ends up using it. You know? Yeah. Well, there's another aspect of it, too, I think, in that the, you know, we're telegeography. The, the geography of your network as a service provider's um, footprint ends up mattering, especially when it's like it's your data center provider or sort of connected mm -hmm. to your cloud service provider and that kind of thing that they, 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 then you're not thinking through the kinds of things like is my network provider in this facility so is my WAN that I get from them going to the right place does it have to connect from down the street even or from mm -hmm. another metro away it's like creating this like it's it's sort of uh, abstracting that layer away from you right so like in in uh, what I always love to say, whenever there's a cloud on a diagram, it just means I don't want you to think about this in this moment right now, right? And so it's sort of making part of your WAN into to that uh, cloud part. So it's just something that you might not have to think about that you might have had to think about if you were approaching it from a, a uh, traditional kind of network scenario. So. Yeah, like yeah. you said, we'll get a lot more of that. Yeah, I was gonna say we could yeah. literally talk for the next exactly. the rest of the podcast about that. But we should probably move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And and so let's transition then to security. Which um, so in 2019, uh, we asked about security um, for the first time in the WAN Manager Survey. Then it was really all about zero trust. Sassy was not a word. Um, zero trust and SASE are, of course, uh, indelibly linked now at this point. Um, but yeah, so so what happened here? One of the things that really struck me in 2019, because um, we had you know heard some of the elements of zero trust being bandied about for, for a couple few years at that point, was that when we asked, "What is it now?" Two and a half years ago, a lot of respondents were kind of like. What is zero trust security? Right, like more than a yeah. third of yeah, respondents didn't exactly. even know what we were talking about. That is not the case anymore, right? So. No, definitely not. We saw a pretty meteoric 
um, mm. increased in just two years. You know, in 2019, only 8% of respondents said that they had implemented some sort of zero trust security feature in right. their network versus 35% in 2021. Yeah, big jump. Yep. And um, the other interesting thing about that was we introduced a new option this year of like, do you plan on doing it, but you're kind of waiting on your SD-WAN deployment before mm -hmm. you start implementing those sorts of things? And that was like the second most popular answer in 2021. So that definitely shows that like SD-WAN right. and Zero Trust Security are also very linked together. Yeah, it's, it's always good when when our survey uh, bears out things that I have said publicly before, <laughs> but that, like certainly that that the order of operations should be, um, you know, sort of uh, adopt SD-WAN with, with security in mind rather than the other way around of, oh, I want to try to approach uh, security from a SASE standpoint and then think about SD-WAN, that's the wrong direction. Right? Mm -hmm, so, exactly. Yeah. Um, and we found that among, you know, those who had implemented some part of it, uh, multi-factor authentication and then single sign-on were the top zero trust features implemented. I think MFA in particular, it's like almost 100% of people who said that they had done some sort of ZTS, right. they like I mean, MFA that, that is That apps. is the cornerstone of what ZTS is, right? Yeah. Because if you can't, identify users and devices, then, then you're not doing zero trust, right? So, and uh, 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 when you have multi-factor, if it's, if you're allowing people in without a multi-factor, then you would, you certainly wouldn't want single sign-on without MFA, for example, right? So, yeah. No, definitely not, given that zero trust is all about, you know, trying to mitigate the danger of, uh, bad, you know, compromised passwords. Right. And stuff that, like that. That, 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 that was my point is that yeah. like, if you're going to have a situation where the, the purpose is to identify users and devices, um, if you're not doing that with MFA, then you're really opening yourself up because stolen credentials are way more likely than, you know, we're all cultured by the hacker movies where they have yeah, like the five screens out and, you know, I'm, I'm cracking the code when it's, it's, it's really so much more mundane. It's that someone, uh, sent you a, a message on Facebook you know, <laughs> and, and said, Hey, what's your phone number again? And you know, yeah, no, what's, yeah. what's your, what's your dog's name? <laughs> what's your mom's maiden yeah, name? Yeah. Uh, that's, you see all these things on Facebook that are like asking you like, what's the street you grew up on? Or you know, what was your first elementary school? Yeah, don't no, do that. No, no, no. <laughs> um, but I will say one interesting thing about that. Um, obviously, like you said, those are kind of the cornerstones. But at the same time, those are also kind of the easiest to implement through existing enterprise software like Office 365 or Microsoft Active Directory or the Google Suite, you know, SSO. So one thing that I think bore out through the survey and through interviews was like, when it comes to zero trust security, not all of these principles are equal in um, ease of implementation, and people tend to go for the mm. low-hanging fruit. Yeah, first. of course. Yeah. And I, I think we talked about this a bit in our year in review, but that it's like, it's almost like as a part of the rest of your digital transformation rather than an explicit change in your security posture. Mm -hmm. I mean, like you mentioned like Azure or Google or something like that. Well, you're doing that to access that specific um, cloud product, not necessarily as a wholesale change in the way that you organize security for your network. It's just that everything needs to move toward that cloud model anyway. So you have MFA for your sign-on, you have MFA or SSO, say for specific cloud products, but you need to get to a place where you have MFA and SSO for 
all of the network things you're doing and then mm -hmm. get rid of the kind of centralized firewalls and, and that kind of thing, um, or admins, uh, passwords and, and whatnot, which it's another factor that admin passwords tend to be something like admin, right? <laughs> you know? So, yeah. So it's, so it's, it's, they're moving toward this ZTNA sassy posture kind of little bits at a time rather than, um, with, you know, SD-WAN maybe doing something that's a much more sort of like stark wholesale yes. change or a rip and replace kind of situation. Well, exactly. And the things that would be much more of a wholesale change, like network segmentation, which also probably would be more in the purview of the network team. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone I talked to who had tried to, who had attempted some sort of network segmentation along zero trust security lines, uh, <laughs> basically had to put it to the side for right. a while because it just wasn't realistic to attempt in a brownfield environment mm -hmm. uh, given the tools that they had um, from what it sounds like so yeah and so it's, it's going to be interesting to see as vendors come up with more of a full sassy stack or suite mm -hmm. of services that's unified in a single you know single plane of glass as they like to say um that 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 then it'll be more like you go in this kind of like, oh, we're now moving to this rather than it's kind of picking up little things here and there, uh, you know, even getting duo or something like that for a general kind of MFA service or something like that. Now, of course, um, we are two years, almost, almost, we're just like a month shy of two years of this world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's no doubt that we've seen some of the work from anywhere, remote work, whatever you want to call it, um, manifest in the the network stuff as well. Uh, have we seen it manifest in the security side? Oh, absolutely. In terms of factors driving companies towards approaching uh, and adopting zero trust solutions, uh, the increase in remote work was the top rated factor. And Obviously, no surprise there. Um, it is a shift from, you know, when we first did this in 2019 um, in the quote unquote before times. Yeah. Um, it was yeah. like remote work was like more middle of the pack and you know, right. increased cloud adoption and Internet use were the top factors, which are still top factors now. Like those elements have not changed. And if anything, it's like remote work accelerated both of those trends right. um, towards where, you know, this sort of uh, perimeterless security became more and more pertinent. Yeah, you know? yeah, this was all underway, but it just lit a fire. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, yeah. you could you could basically say that for all of these network trends. You know, none of this mm -hmm. was new, but it was greatly accelerated by remote work. Yeah, yeah, because ultimately, really, at bottom, what's driving all of these security changes is the digital transformation and cloud changes um, in, the, in the move away from, you know, a sort of um, hub and spoke data mm -hmm. center architecture and stuff like that, which was all already happening. It's just that having um, remote work just added to the need for that even, right? Because, because you're not getting onto the WAN from a WAN site. Yep. Exactly. Um, and, and so it's like, the, the, but those things were already happening because that's where the software is. Right? So, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, what about um, vendors? So, so that to my point earlier about, you know, what, what we're 
really interested, I think, in seeing happen over the next year is how carriers, MSPs, vendors um, sort of end up packaging all of this into a cohesive product. We, we asked everybody uh, in 2021 here about who they were using for um, security and, and also just kind of what their vendor strategy was. So are folks getting security from a single vendor yet? <laughs> Is that, that's, that, I think, the place to start. Uh, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so we actually asked people, um, specific vendors as well, mm -hmm. just to see what's going on in the market. And one interesting insight there was, you know, the kind of largest uh, incumbents, which is, you know, Cisco, Palo Alto, Fortinet, you know, they were leading the pack um, in hardware, but they were also leading in the software-based security vertical. Um, I think part of this might just be that uh, People or you know companies, if they are, for example, already using Palo Alto or Cisco hardware boxes, they might spring for the software, mm -hmm. you know, white box version as well. If they're like thinking about also yeah, using well, that. Also, those are all three SD WAN vendors they too, are. which is they I are. think really key here, right? So if if you're using Viptela, Umbrella is probably uh, not only rhymes, but is probably a, a logical choice, right? So. But then the other insight from you know asking for these vendors was that we when we tallied it up, we did find that most WAN managers were using multiple network infrastructure security vendors on their network. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of that, there's probably some people who have like deliberate redundancy going on in their network. I talked to one person where you know they're at like a <clears throat> sorry. Uh, I talked to one person where they're at a you know large financial institution mm -hmm. and their security team basically said we need redundant firewalls mm -hmm. everywhere so that's what they do right um but at the same time that's some not of it, everybody no yeah, definitely yeah. not some of it is definitely just tech debt like right. especially with how many you know, mnas uh go on you might like merge with a company where they have a different firewall system that they're using and it takes a while to mm -hmm. sunset that product etc cetera, etc cetera. um but the general attitude as well, just towards security vendor um, sourcing and management still is that most companies generally seem to uh, handle those relationships independent of their network um, vendors or right. their, you know, their carriers. And so that I think would be the biggest change. We're one of the biggest changes with SASE is handing off that management of the security relationship to um your network provider, yeah, basically. Exactly. I think that that is the change, like I alluded to before, that that we're looking to see over the next couple of few years, even really, is is to you know have a a one stop shop for uh, well a secure access service edge, if you mm. will, right? So then that just really is not there yet, and it goes back to what we were saying before that the 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 elements of ZTNA that folks have adopted might be, you know, little pieces here and there, but you still might have a centralized breakout where you still have a traditional firewall and all that kind of thing. So I think it's going to take quite some time for folks to, um, just to pick an example uh, that I used before, say, you know, okay, well, we're going to use umbrella for everything security. I think we're probably a ways away from that being a widespread phenomenon. Definitely. I mean, uh, I kind of included at the end of the security section, just a little summation of uh, some of the interview opinions about SASE and the general attitude just seemed to be like, it's not, um, 
it's not really a mature enough offering yet for a lot of large enterprises mm. to seriously consider. Um, though, of course, people are talking about it and thinking about it. There's a lot of issue issues of you know scaling uh, for a large multinational company, and you know fears of vendor lock-in. Um, and also just the challenges of trying to implement something like that in a brownfield environment where you still have a lot of on-premises mm-hmm. um, resources and you still have physical sites and, but you know, you're also dealing with your remote workers. It's just like not quite settled yet. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, and an environment where you still have a lot of MPLS yeah. out there, which is yeah. just why we didn't used to talk about security very much at the WAN summit because it wasn't much of an issue in the central breakout MPLS kind of environment. Right. So um, there's just, there's a lot of moving parts and things that uh, everybody can see and understand, but are just going to take a long time to sort of come to fruition, so to speak. Anything else about, about um, Sassy that we glean from, from the interviews or anything like that? I think, my biggest takeaway is just that Sassy is still very new. And uh, honestly, for both us as analysts and for many large enterprise clients, there's still a question of what is, what is it? What is it? What is the hype? What yeah. is the actual business ad for it? Right. And I think that's something that the vendor community will continue to refine and um, develop. And, you know, maybe the what is like a mature Sassy offering we haven't even seen what that is going to be yet. Um, Cause even mm-hmm. when I talk to other vendors, um, a lot of the times what this, what their security offering is really is just like, we have a partnership with a cloud-based firewall company and mm-hmm. we'll manage that for our customers, you know? So maybe what SASE will really be will evolve from there, but it's still, um, we're just gonna have to see. Sure, SD-WAN, SD-WAN 1.0 was, you know, basically load balancing forward error correction and then 2.0 now there's folks saying numbers beyond 2.0 even beyond 3.0 and um and and ultimately that may actually really come to mean sassy perhaps you know um so just you know, kind of we'll, i was i was actually yeah uh, yeah i was reading talking about sdm 3.0 i was mm-hmm. reading about um the sort of cloud wan uh, transport right. offerings that some of the major cloud service providers are doing. Mm-hmm. And um, one of them has, I was really like, you know, they have like a partnership with various SD-WAN vendors where you can create an SD-WAN um, like virtual machine basically right. in there in the cloud virtual hub to connect it to the rest of your SD-WAN network and then kind of seamlessly flow that traffic onto the cloud backbone. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, like, that's kind of, I remember reading about that sort of thing with SD-WAN 2.0 as a theoretical thing. Right. Uh, but it seems like now it's actually starting to be implemented. So. Yeah. In the end, you still have to get there. Yeah. Over an internet connection. So that th- that probably shouldn't be IPsec. <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, that, it's, it's going to be interesting to watch, n- not so much from the technical perspective, but how these things get stuck together in a commercial way and from whom, right? So, yeah. Cause again, in the end, it's still all wavelengths between data centers or local access, like from the telegeography perspective, layers one, two, three, it's still ultimately all the same thing, right? There are wires over which bits go, right? So, 
um, a, a lot of the, the distinctions on how that work are, um, I mean, not just a, further up the stack, but are kind of how you present the commercial model to the customer, right? So. Yeah, 100%. Excellent. All right. So it is February 2022. We usually run this survey in quarter two. So we'll be doing the survey again this year, quarter two. Look out for it again if you're listening to this and are on the end user side. First, if you are not yet a member of our WAN forum, which is for end users only. So uh, um, unfortunately, if you're uh, a vendor in the telecom uh, space, um, you cannot join the WAN forum, but that's for a very good reason, which is that it's this space for end users to be able to um, sort of uh, understand all of what we're doing at Telegeography and, and even talk to each other. There is an actual forum there mm -hmm. about what's going on. Um, and there, you can read this report um, in its entirety. If, if you're uh, on the vendor side, of course, we're happy to um, hook you up with our uh, sales manager to get a look at the report as well. But if you're, if you're not already a member of the, the WAN forum and you're from the end user side, definitely reach out to us. And, um, and we'd love to make you a member where you can find all of this. And we will then be putting the quarter two version of the survey when it's out. Now, and we've done um, kind of every other year, SD-WAN and security. So this should be an SD-WAN year. Um, but per this conversation, the lines are becoming a little bit blurred yeah. anyway, right? And we're, we're also changing the way that we think about the survey. We're going to move some of the network elements into a kind of more of a panel-based survey. And so... The, the, those of you listening to this that we might meet at conferences and whatnot will have um, probably a little bit different of a survey this year. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, so basically we're looking at maybe uh, refining and streamlining the survey that we send out to, you know, WAN managers, focusing more on the kind of decision-making aspects. Yeah, exactly. We, we can get the data and management. on yeah, and the where stuff are about, your sites and, yes. and how many of them have MPLS. We're, we're, we can get that from more of a sort of IT panel our plans and, and uh, save for the IT infrastructure manager types, um, uh, those of you listening and whatnot, for the, the deeper questions on like what, what kind of vendors are you thinking about and why and where are you in these journeys and, and how do you need to get from here to there. So probably focus on SD-WAN. Um, but uh, maybe SD-WAN and SASE. Yeah, exactly. That yeah. that um, just knowing who has and has not adopted SD-WAN probably isn't that useful anymore since we have a pretty good time series on that. We'll still do that because we still do need to know that. But get more into, you know, what vendors you're using, why, and um, what other services are getting wrapped into SD-WAN. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then I think probably a little bit of a focus on how network as a service is developing as well. We, we have looked at cloud connectivity. I think that's moving into being more about middle mile performance anyway. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, I think we're probably going to look more towards middle mile. But that's what's really cool here is then if you are on either side of, of, the, of the market, right, vendor or or end user, um, feel free to get in touch with uh, either Elizabeth or myself. You can find us both on LinkedIn and tell us what you think um, we should focus on, uh, especially within those topics of kind of SD-WAN and SASE integration, network as a service and middle mile performance. What is it that you want to know there? Um, 
And like I said, that, that should be coming out um, as a survey in quarter two, and then we'll have that report done like this uh, year in, in the very beginning of, of 2023. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. This was uh, super interesting, even for me after having read the report to talk through it again. So yeah. So super glad to be back. And uh, yeah, this is a really great conversation. And I hope our, the listeners got something out of it too. Yeah, and to, to be talking to each other in the office. Let's all be honest. That is kind of nice. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. And thanks to everybody listening. We'll see you again very soon. Thanks for listening. The WAN Manager podcast comes from the team at Telegeography. It's edited and produced by Jane Miller, and it's hosted by me, Greg Bryan. I also wrote the theme song that you're listening to right now. To learn more about our data, jump over to telegeography.com. Or if you want to get right into more WAN content like you hear on the show, you can visit Telegeography's WAN Forum at WANforum.com. We've got all of our podcast episodes over there, WAN Manager survey data, and extra analysis pieces. That's all for now. So until next time, WAN enthusiasts.